You know, Jay, the government doesn't do so well with mutant and mutant-adjacent teams, right? I mean, Freedom Force, X-Factor... Miles, X-Factor wasn't a total disaster. Dude, Sabretooth Sabretoothed everyone. Oh, no, no, not that X-Factor. The X-Factor that was a mutant civil rights task force established by Agents Gray and Kearse. Wait, Gray? Any relation to... Gray with an A. Ah, so what did they do? Not much. They were established just before M-Day. I'd imagine that limited the scope of their work. Oh yeah, so they basically just kind of bummed around until Norman Osborn... Killed them? Became president and fired them. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 414 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome backy to Howard Mackey, because we're covering X-Factor today. How long have you been saving that? Uh, actually, mere moments before I said it, and it was this moment of pure bliss when I realized I would get to say it, like, right after. There was this perfect molecule of anticipation, and then catharsis. I'm I'm so happy for you. I'm happy too. Well, that does mean that the episode's only going to go downhill from here. Sort of. So, listeners, we've really made no secret of the fact that Howard Mackey's lengthy X-Factor run, it's not, like, awful, but we haven't really gotten all that into it. And now that we're approaching the end, now that the status quo is starting to rapidly shift... Now it's getting interesting. Now it's getting interesting. And it's a, it's getting interesting in a weird way, because we're in the home stretch. like at our current pace, we're going to have this episode and one more X-Factor episode, and that's the end of X-Factor Volume 1. That's the end of Howard Mackey's run, that's the end of the idea of a government-sponsored team for quite a long time, that's the last we'll see of a lot of these characters. So... It's almost over. And it's not only the end of all of those things, it's a very abrupt and somewhat untimely end. And I think that's really important, because all of the stuff we're reading now is building up in anticipation of issues that were never produced. Exactly. We keep hearing again and again in the discussion of this era, leading up to the end, that everything was going to happen in number 150. 150 was going to be this big turning point. We were going to learn who assassinated Graydon Creed. We were going to have like a new team lineup. And then X Factor ended with issue 149. Exactly. It's odd. There's a lot of conjecture as to what happened there. I've heard multiple things. We'll talk more about that in our next and final X-Factor Volume 1 uh, episode, whenever we record that one. But I was looking through some of the letters columns around this time, because that's always an interesting way of seeing what editorial's official stance on things was. Ooh, yeah. So I pulled out a couple of quotes from whoever was handling the letters column in Marvel Editorial from number 145. One letter writer was talking about these rumors of the book being canceled soon, and the editor replied, The rumors are totally false, Mike. By issue number 150, the core team will be decided, and man, are you going to be happy. And another person wrote in to talk about the lack of direction in X-Factor during this era, which, well, fair enough. The editor replied to that one, don't worry, though, we have a direction. It will all come to a head in issue number 150, so stay with us. And like you said, Jay, there would never be an issue number 150. And I have to wonder how much that must have sucked for all the people that were so excited for where this was going, for Howard Mackey himself. 
But at the same time, it's not like Howard Mackey stopped writing X books. Once X-Factor ends, he picks up What Happened to Havoc with Mutant X, an ongoing series that will run for a shockingly long time. And be generally critically and popularly maligned. For most of that. That too. I, I know you do uh, have some positive thoughts toward, uh, toward certain aspects of it, at least, which, fair enough. It has its moments. I will not say that it is a good series. I, I don't think that that would be, that would be a true statement, and I, I try to be pretty honest here. But... Yeah, it has moments. It does have the only well-adjusted Scott Summers in the entire multiverse, which is kind of cool. He's a space pirate. And he's very good at it. Well done, Scott. No, Jay, listen, I will never, ever get on anybody's case for liking a thing that is not good because parts of it are good. That's, like, the way I interact with the world. I listen to so much otherwise terrible heavy metal that just has a couple things that make me giggle and smile, and that's enough. And that is not a bad way of interacting with the world. So speaking of picking and choosing parts, X-Factor at this point is down to its dregs, at least as far as the original team is concerned. In fact, I'm not sure. Oh, I guess one member of X-Factor appears in the four issues we're covering today. Yeah, let's talk backstory. Let's talk what led us to this point of chaos. So we know X-Factor. We know they're the formerly U.S. government-sponsored, now underground and rogue, but like with a lowercase r, mutant team. We know they've been through a lot of shit. And yeah, we know their lineup is changing, like you just said. Now, the two most recently lost members were Mystique and Sabretooth, whose whose membership, or at least whose voluntary membership, was pretty questionable to begin with. Mystique is off to pretend to be a senator's wife, and Sabretooth is off to, well, kill people after the two of them escaped. But before Sabretooth kills people in general, he wants to go after some people in particular. He recently brutally attacked the rest of the team, leaving their leader Forge, their longtime member Polaris, and guy who's basically Sabretooth Jr. Wildchild, hospitalized. Wildchild isn't Sabretooth Jr., he's more like dollar store knockoff Sabretooth. Oh, Sabretooth, but spelled like E-R instead of R-E in the middle? Robert Cop Sabretooth. Saberbooth. Yeah, let's go with that. Now, in this attack, holographic cop from the future Shard was seemingly killed, but she was actually sent back through her own memories of the future. To remember the time, she briefly joined Xavier's underground enforcers, the XUE, a group of renegade future cops from Xavier's security enforcers, XSE, and the XUE wanted to go back in time to change history and prevent their dark future from ever happening. And for reasons that remain nebulous and hand-wavy, because Shard involuntarily phased into the unconscious Polaris's body during the attack, it gave the XUE enough of a link to the present day for the rest of the members, or at least their consciousnesses, to travel back in time. This never makes sense. I'm just going to put that out here right now. There is not sense to me made of the situation. Just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. Meanwhile, former X-Factor leader Havoc has been palling around with Dark Beast. Dark Beast, of course, being um, the refugee Hank McCoy from the Age of Apocalypse, an evil version of, you know, the founding X-Men member. And Havoc has been pretending to work with Dark Beast uh, by, to form a new militant team called the Brotherhood, but he's actually secretly working to take Dark Beast and his inhumane experiments down. And that brings us roughly to X-Factor number 142, Give Me Shelter. This issue is written by fill-in writer Bill Roseman, fill-in penciler Leo Fernandez, inker Dan Green, colorist Ian Laughlin, and letterers Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So 
whenever we see an unfamiliar set of creators, I always like to give them a quick look. I was wondering if Bill Roseman in particular had written Wild Child before, because this issue is all about Wild Child and Wild Child's backstory, which is not something we've gotten very much of in X Factor. But uh, no, no, he didn't. Uh, X-Wise, Roseman wrote a one-shot called Uncanny Origins Nightcrawler, which is yet another version of Nightcrawler's backstory, some X-related what-ifs, and the Marrow story we just covered in X-Men Unlimited number 18. He also wrote a 2002 miniseries about the Daily Bugle from Spider-Man with art by Guy Davis and colors by Dave Stewart. It's called Deadline. And yeah, with that creative team, we have got to check that out. Also, Bill Roseman wrote a licensed Home Depot comic where some Home Depot store employees teamed up with a Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and I kind of want to read that too. Wow. Right? If we're spending this much time talking about Roseman, uh, Leo Fernandez, the artist, did a bit of X art in Greg Rucka's Wolverine run and uh, in New Mutants Volume 3, so that's cool too. So this this issue opens with, God, speaking of former X-Factor members, former X-Factor boss Valerie Cooper and her ex-husband, Edmund Atkinson, sharing Chinese takeout on Christmas. As is traditional for Jews and, I suppose, workaholics. And they're really great. We've seen them together briefly. Edmund only recently appeared for the first time. Val we've known for ages. She's the action bureaucrat who uh, has been grumpily liaisoning with X-Factor and the government for a while. She's currently on the outs with him. But uh, yeah, they're on good terms with each other. Edmund gives Val a tiny Christmas tree, and it's adorable, and I really wish he ever showed up in a story again after this issue. Val, unfortunately, is, is not into the holiday. It's tough to get into the spirit when a presidential hopeful was turned into a pile of ash on your watch. I'm sorry, Ed. I appreciate the tree. I really do. But what this little girl really wants for Christmas is to figure out what Sabretooth or Mystique had to do with the assassination of Graydon Creed. Alas, that will have to wait until 2001. Sorry, Val. Yeah, that'll be in the X-Men Forever miniseries. It'll be very confusing. But why she also has to wait is that right now she's interrupted by Wild Child falling down the chimney like a blonde, sideburned Santa Claus. Don't most Santas have sideburns? They just also have a full beard. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So I guess uh, chin, beard, and mustacheless Santa Claus, maybe? Sure. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. The reason that Wild Child's playing Santa is because the CIA and the Hound program, that program that's been hunting mutants... They're watching Val. They know she knows about X-Factor, who's currently on the lam, and so they're keeping an eye on her. I like the implication that those organizations believe in Santa sufficiently that they won't look askance at someone dropping down her chimney. Oh, yeah, no, they just look up and wonder, and the spirit of Christmas fills their hearts. He's not dressed as Santa or anything. No, but they know. They know. As for why Wild Child is here... He's decided to leave X-Factor after that attack by Sabretooth. He says it just wasn't working out with them. The last time we saw him, though, he was very much on the team. Like, yeah, he was injured, but he was a pretty core member. So much is abrupt in this arc and the next one, but I appreciate that even though we have the cast dropping like flies, leaving the book one at a time, they're not just gone. This isn't just Giant Size X-Men number one where they barely get a chance to say goodbye. Like, every departing cast member gets a focal story or at least scene. And yeah, this issue is Wild Child getting a whole issue. We also learn a bit about why he's maybe changing up his life. He's starting to mutate again. He's starting to get more animalistic, more claw-y and muscly and flat-nose-y. Kind of like what happened with Wolverine after he devolved, actually. 
Why is it that loss of noses is such a fundamental component of de-evolution? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Wild Child's supposed to be a dog boy, but lots of dogs have very pointy noses. Like, you know, greyhounds and that other one. Whippets? Dobermans? Whippets. I was thinking of whippets. Oh man, whippets are so weird. They're like scale models of, of uh, greyhounds. Now I'm just trying to imagine if Wild Child looked like a whippet. He'd be kind of adorable, but also unsettling, and he would look very fragile. You know what are really unsettling? Bourgeois. I don't know what that is. They are... they're just weird. They're just really weird dogs. I'm gonna look up Bourgeois after we're done recording, and if they're weird enough, maybe we can put them in the Visual Companion. Dude, pause. I'm gonna send you a link to them right now. Listeners, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, we just paused and Jay showed me a picture of that dog, and that is indeed a weird-looking dog. So weird. There was a Tumblr post that went around a while back that I really loved that was about the idea of dogs as body horror for wolves. <laughs> that works way too well. And I feel like bourgeois are kind of the epitome of that. Oh yeah, it's like uncanny valley monstrosities. Anyway, X-Factor. Anyway, X-Factor. So Wild Child's had a rough day, what with the mutation and the quitting, and the being Santa Claus, and takes a nap, which gives Val Cooper some time to fill in Edmund on a whole lot of backstory. There's a lot she hasn't told him about her relationship with X-Factor, and in this case, there's a lot the comic hasn't told us. Wildchild and Val's dynamic was only barely hinted at when he first joined the team. So whether this was what Howard Mackey intended back then, whether this is just retcon to give Wildchild an interesting send-off, I don't know. But do we have a tale for you? We flash back to Val Cooper's early days, just out of college, and we can tell that it's her early days that she's younger because she's wearing her socks pulled almost up to her knees along with her jacket and her skirt. What is it about that that makes people look younger? Like, it does, but I don't get it. It's because knee socks are coded as school uniforms. I guess that's true. Maybe that's because, like, I never went to a school with uniforms. Okay, gotcha. So... Basically, either they dress like Val Cooper is dressed here, or they dress like What's-His-Face from ACDC. Anyway, the agency that Val Cooper has joined up with out of college, she thought they were legit, they seemed legit, and they've asked her to work with mutants. She didn't really give a shit about mutants, but she figured, hey, this was a good start working toward her true love. Bureaucracy. I love how much, like, that is really Val's dream from the start. Oh god, yeah, I think she was doodling, like, Val plus paperwork in a heart in her notebooks in middle school. No, 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 no. She was doodling entire forms, and then signing them that way. <laughs> nice. She does her taxes with hearts over all the eyes, though, I bet. Now, in this organization, she was assigned to, to work with a specific mutant, a young man named Kyle Gibney, who at that point looked entirely human, and she was told that Kyle was a pathological liar— and that she had to figure out how to get through to him. And of course, that's a, that's a good setup because that way, you know, she didn't believe him when he told her that he was kidnapped by the organization she was working for. She's like, oh no, you're so silly. But no, that's exactly what happened. And eventually Val does break through months later, and we can tell it's months later because Kyle has longer, floopier hair and Val's socks aren't quite so tall. She realizes something about him. It wasn't me he hated. It was the idea of authority. The rigidity of the agency. And if playing by their rules wasn't working, I would change them. And she finally gets through to him, and she does this by tossing him the keys to her first car and asking him to teach her to drive stick shift, which has mixed results. Yeah, like, they definitely bond, but as they do, Kyle's emotions start to fluctuate between laughter and anger and fear and sadness— like, he, he goes all through that spectrum just within a few minutes with her. 
And apparently that's what the watching shadowy agents from this agency wanted. They wanted him to open up so that his mutation could do that to his emotions, and so that they could then turn him into a weird psycho killer with a whole bunch of drugs and evil science. That's not cool. Totally not cool. And Fernandez, the artist, does a great job with this. We see Wild Child in the clothing that's been ripped apart by his transformation. Take a drink. And we see Wild Child's characteristic giant sideburns for the first time, his huge veiny muscles, his big fangs. He actually looks a lot like Sabretooth in this picture. And then we see him subdued by four guards who are, are, are just deeply 90s individuals. It's like if Blackwater made a boy band. Wow, that got dark. They've got these backward caps, they're like posing and jumping in action poses with their nightsticks and their Uzis. Some of them have goatees, and some have skull tattoos, and they're covered in pouches. Like, the level of posing here, while being so douchey and violent looking, is bizarre. Would it be a boy band or a new metal band? Oh god. I don't know, I mean, this level of posing makes me think boy band, but that goatee really feels new metal. Were there such a thing as new metal boy bands? I... I cannot let my heart venture down such dark corridors, Jay. So after that, Val never sees Kyle again until he joins X-Factor many years later. Or so she tells her ex. Edmund has his own take on the way this went down. It makes sense to him. I think I can take the story from here. Looking for something positive in your life, you meet and marry me. And then rededicate yourself to working with mutants. Perhaps in part driven to compensate for your perceived failure with Kyle. And they talk through the rest of Kyle's history, his time against and then on Alpha Flight, his mutation into the handsome Wildheart and back again. What? Yeah, so at one point he mutated like in a handsome direction and he changed his name to Wildheart, and that's when he and Aurora hooked up, but then when he started mutating to be ugly again, he broke up with her preemptively because he thought she wouldn't like him if he wasn't pretty. Okay, but that is a fucking My Little Pony name. I know! It's great! I wonder if he had a cutie mark on his butt. I bet he did. Probably. Yeah, it'd be like a maple leaf, maybe? He was on Alpha Flight. I, I assume it was a heart or something like that. Maybe a heart and a maple leaf from the two overlapping. Or maybe, like, one half was a heart and the other half was a maple leaf. That sounds poorly designed. They're both red. At least, iconographically. I suppose. Anyway, apparently she also found out that the institution she used to work for that had her breakthrough to Kyle, yeah, that was the Secret Empire. Do you remember the Secret Empire, Jay? Oh shit, that was the Richard Nixon thing. Yeah, yeah, it was this big shadowy government organization that was prominent in the Captain America books back in the 70s, and it turned out the Marvel Universe version of Richard Nixon was running it with all of their tasks to, like, make assassins and stuff, and when Captain America confronted him, uh, Nixon shot himself. But his name wasn't Nixon. It wasn't, like, Nixon Nixon, but it was basically Nixon. It was basically the Marvel Universe doing the Watergate scandal. President Bixon. President Bixon. He was right there with Saberbooth. Val is not telling quite the whole story, and if there's any character who really cares about coherent continuity and truth-telling, it's Sabretooth. Wait a minute. Well, at least in this setting, he uh, busts through a window Kool-Aid Man style or in traditional X-Factor form in order to fill in the details. Yeah, he puts a claw to Val's neck to make sure everybody's listening, including Wildchild, who's woken up from nappy time, and talks about the rest. Apparently, years later, something Val didn't tell Edmund just now, is that she saw Kyle again. 
she heard that he was being shown off, that he'd been turned into this feral, animalistic, living weapon. And in the demonstration she saw, she saw just how dark things had gotten. Right. Um, he was being kept in an observation pit, naked and completely savage, and uh, he ate a homeless guy. Yeah, he had a homeless guy. And Val just left. She just went back to her life, and she didn't tell anyone. Damn, Val. Uncool. Sabretooth figures uncool will be Wildchild's take on the situation, too, and he holds Val helpless, waiting for Wildchild to charge forward and rip out her throat or something. But that's not what happens. Right, Wildchild dives forward to save her, not to kill her, and that gives the watching government agents time to burst in. Unfortunately, they have doffed their 90s boy new metal band gear for much more generic government agent garb. Well, it's not the Secret Empire. It was the Secret Empire that had all the cool outfits. Not really much of a secret if they weren't that flashy. Hmm, the best secret of all. The kind that hides in plain sight and does it all for the nookie. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. So Kyle's rescue of Val and the government agents bursting in, that gives Kyle and separately Sabretooth time to separately dive out the window to escape. But apparently, Kyle left a note for Val before or after his nap. And he says that he forgives her. The secret empire was just too big. The note ends. Change can hurt, but this time I'm ready. Because you didn't just give me the keys to your car. You gave me the keys to finding myself. So don't worry, I'm going to be just fine. And we see this set against his limbs elongating and his muscles ripping through his clothes with horrible noises. Again, take a drink. As he howls at the rainy sky. It's actually really sad. Like, between this and Sabretooth Back to Nature, I care so much more about Wildchild than I ever thought I would. It's just that most of the time he's so much less interesting than when he gets the spotlight like this. Yeah, he's a character who's very easily overshadowed, which makes it difficult, I think, to use him well in team books. Well, especially when he's on a team with a character like Sabretooth. And I know that was deliberate, like the book was contrasting the two of them against one another, asking what really makes a man versus what really makes a beast. But Sabretooth is just so much louder of a presence in a comic. Now, this is the last we're going to see of Wild Child for a little while, although he'll end up back in the Weapon X series, uh, where things will go extremely, extremely badly for him. Uh, Sabretooth has gone from the book too, but he's everywhere forever, and Edmund Atkinson will, after this issue, it never be seen again. And save for one more brief appearance, that's it for Val Cooper as a focal character in a Marvel comic. She'll be around in Thunderbolts for a bit, various X issues here and there, but this is really the end of an era. The book is making a clear statement of purpose that everything is changing. And that takes us into the appropriately named X-Factor number 143, The Fall of the Brotherhood, Part 1. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Jamie Mendoza, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Kiff Scholl. The opening narration uh, certainly is confident about the importance of everything happening here. Events set in motion this night will determine the survival of man and mutant kind. Or maybe they would have if the book wasn't cancelled so soon. But what can you do? I mean, they kinda do. Like, there, there is something that's prevented from happening that would have been pretty catastrophic, at least. It's just that the phrasing implies that it's, it's you know, so there's going to be something that makes a cataclysmic difference, not that the cataclysm will be averted. Averting cataclysms is important, too. See figure one, climate change. 
So we start with a few different threads, which are eventually going to join up. And I'm going to start with Shard. So Shard, disturbed by her near-death experience and generally mistrusting X-Factor, she's gone off on her own. She's hitchhiking across the country. This story is actually a really good example of how to handle a big status quo shift. Like, you show all the messy steps from point A to point B. You don't just do a clean break. You don't just have things change in between issues the way we sometimes see. That brings us to a bus crash. Now, a bus crashes with a train and three passengers, freshly dead, are possessed by Fix, Archer, and Greystone. Those are the future members of the XUE who have traveled back in time or whose consciousnesses have traveled back in time via Shard's brief possession of Polaris. And remember, the XUE is a splinter group from the XSE. So these are folks who were cops, but then went renegade with the goal of going back in time and changing things so their dark future was never so dark. You know... I realize there are a lot of reasons to be disappointed that this series ended so abruptly, but we kind of, I feel like we kind of dodged a bullet. As far as the uh, XUE and how engaging they are? Well, as far as how much we have to explain. Oh, I see. There is that. That is a really good point. So let's just explain what happens to them right now. Because each of their disembodied time-traveling consciousnesses finds a body. We've heard them talk a little bit about how because of Fixed's power, she's got this, these little psychic butterfly sprite things. She can something, something, something connect with an unconscious or dead body to travel through time. And again, this is very, very hand-waved. It's never clear, but basically each of them shows up in, you know, the body of one of the recently deceased passengers. Uh, Archer possesses a criminal named Jude Black with absolutely fantastic hair. Greystone possesses a young runaway named Brian Young, and Fix possesses a woman who is only ever going to be known as Jane Doe. This is the only information we get on her in this narration, ever. The young woman with a gun to her head is surprisingly unafraid. Compared to the life from which she is running, death seems a welcome diversion. But yeah, Fix doesn't get any of this woman's memories, whereas the other two get memories of the corpses that they're inhabiting. I'm sure this would have gone somewhere, but it doesn't. Where it does go, though, is artistically glorious. Because you mentioned Jude Black's incredible hair. Yeah, he's got this big, messy pompadour mullet, but he's also got this strange, spiky thing. It's like if you took a Van Dyke, you know, like the traditional goatee thing with the mustache, but you just had the sides of it, and they were super long and spiky. They're like, I don't know, like facial hair mandibles almost. Huh. Anyway, Duncan Rulo makes it work. Yeah, Rulo makes a lot of designs work that, that shouldn't quite, which is kind of splendid. Like, I feel like that's something that a number of X-Factor artists that we've really liked have had in common. 100%. Yeah, his Greystone especially. Greystone is a dude whose mutant powers to turn into, like, this gigantic Maori warrior form. But by gigantic, I mean gigantic. And with Rouleau's predilection toward exaggeration, that really, really works. I really would have loved to have seen Rouleau get to do more with Strong Guy. Oh, yeah, me too. For real. But alas, X-Factor is ending. So we'll move from the XUE on to Mystique. And Mystique is hanging out in New York City as Mallory Brickman, again, the, the wife of Senator What's-His-Name Brickman, when she gets a call from someone claiming to know who she is and demanding that she meet them in Grand Central Terminal. The, the call is, of course, from the XUE. And she shows up as a cop and appears to be arresting them, and they go along, but easily identify her as Mystique once they're out of the crowd. As Greystone says, We are trained law enforcement officers. If we couldn't scan a mutant metamorph, we might as well turn in our badges. Now, we talked 
last time we covered the XUE, about their mysterious leader. This is someone who is implied to have been forged, and never more heavily than in the bit that follows, because Mystique is skeptical and disinterested, but Archer manages to convince her to work with them via the instructions of, again, that mysterious leader. He says, He said to tell you this. Now is the time foretold by your friend Irene Adler, Destiny. Heed the call, Mystique. Also, as part of this convincing, uh, Fix sends this gigantic goddamn cloud of psychic sprites after Mystique to get her to listen, and it looks so cool. It's like this 50-foot cloud, like, I don't know what spell that would be in D&D, but it kind of reminds me of the question we answered recently about which psychic powers are visible. Fixes are definitely very visible. With all those pieces in play, there's one left to add to the mix, and that is Alex Summers, Havoc, who is taking a break from evil to... Ice skate at Rockefeller Center, um, where unfortunately he is disrupted by his comrade in arms ever crashing to the rink, pursued by two big weird monster things. Ever and Alex, as you may recall, were working together to try to undercut whatever Dark Beast's evil plan was, but it looks like Ever has been found out, and Dark Beast has sent these weird, weird monsters after him. And there are so many good Duncan Rouleau designs here. Ever, as we've mentioned, never looks better than when Rouleau draws him. He's just this humanoid mass of, like, pink, wrinkly brain held together by yellow armor. And these monsters, they're like, I don't know, a cross between giant chipmunks, a more organic version of the phalanx, and like those sponge monkey things from RatherGood.com back in the early 2000s that were in that one Quiznos commercial about how they liked the moon ages ago. Uh, That. I'm going to have to take your word on the last one. We like the moon because it is close to us. No, I remember people going around saying that. I just never knew what it was from. Oh, yeah. Same people that did that Viking Kittens uh, video to the song Gay Bar by Electric Six. That I remember. Oh, so, so memorable in college. Uh, Anyway, Havoc saves a kid who's being menaced by these chipmunk sponge monkeys. And the kid freaks out that, oh my god, Alex is a mutant. Or possibly freaks out about the fact that Havoc just disintegrated a monster like five feet away from her face and it was gross. Yeah, but she, you know, uses a derogatory term in the process, so uncool either way. Yeah, kid, you can be freaked out by disintegrations and viscera without being, like, racist about it. So Alex, figuring that Dark Beast is on to him and ever, and it's time to act, fucks off back to the tunnels to blow everything up. And I love the way Rouleau draws Havoc's powers. We've often seen Havoc drawn, ever since Neil Adams, with his powers as these concentric circles and sort of a flat 2D plane overlapping him. Yeah, his his powers always occupy the same page, not as the action, not as the characters, but as the comic book page itself. Exactly. And we still see that here. But this time, it's not just a bunch of concentric circles centered around Alex's sternum or heart. They're just all over the place. There are multiple ones. They're different sizes. They keep changing. It implies this more fluctuating living power that Alex is getting more control over, or at least has building up more and more inside him. Well, and Alex is using his powers more forcefully than we've really ever seen him do before. He basically takes down the entire lab. Also, he briefly runs into Aurora and sends her off. Wait, since when was Aurora with the Brotherhood? Aurora, yeah, Alpha Flight character, sister of Northstar, she showed up in X-Men. We've seen a lot of the Brotherhood in the X-Men book that we're not covering. Nate Gray joined the Brotherhood for like two seconds before getting in a fight with them, as is his way, and uh, they rescued Aurora during that time. Okay, well, she gets a whole page here before going off to do something else. 
And Dark Beast sends Fatal, his his teleporting sidekick, off to fight Havoc, who has no time for this shit and promptly blasts her thoroughly along with most of the walls. Yeah, it's very clear he disintegrates her and all the chipmunk sponge monkeys that are with her. Like, they are dead. There is goo. And Dark Beast mentioned something about repeatedly cloning Fatal, which, I don't know, maybe makes it better? A little? I'm not sure. It's clearly supposed to. Whether it actually does is questionable. But then the XUE shows up and says, look, we can't let you destroy Dark Beast's lab. We, we can't do it, and we can't tell you why. Says, oh, hell no. And Shard, who shows up, says, oh, hell no. So we've got the two of them facing off against the XUE and Mystique. And that's the end of the issue. This is an exciting shakeup. We have Havoc and Shard, who have barely overlapped, fighting for the cause of justice versus Mystique and the XUE, teaming up for reasons we don't understand, and Dark Beast scheming in the background. This right here almost makes me wish that this book kept going. It's just so much more exciting than it's ever been in this entire run. And that brings us to X-Factor number 144, Points of View. It's written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Jamie Mendoza and Alan Martinez, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Hey, wait, the last issue is Fall of the Brotherhood Part 1. Shouldn't this be Fall of the Brotherhood Part 2? It should be a lot of things, Miles. Hmm. And uh, as we can see from the cover, great, Random is back. I feel like his name is kind of seeping into his narrative usage. Yeah. Uh, Also, the cover says random violence, which was the same thing it said on the cover of Random's first appearance. And for a while, my friends and I in the playground thought that his full name was random violence, like, you know, Mr. Violence. Oh, that would have been great. I really wish they'd gone with that. Right? That's very funny. But we start not with Random, but with the point of view of a woman named Mary Stewart, who is one of Dark Beast's subjects. Uh Uh-oh, she gets a name and she gets backstory. But, like, it's three full pages of backstory. I feel like there's a sweet spot where if you have just a little bit of backstory in a name, you're going to get killed to show how bad the bad guys are. But if you have a lot of backstory, maybe that acts as a bit of armor to absorb the bullets of plot coming at you. Does it? I don't think she fares particularly well here. She's a runaway who was lured in by Random as his teen self. Remember, Random's actual actual body, his actual form is, is a fairly young teenager. And he was going by the name Alex at that point, which, ooh, ironic. Right. And he was posing as Mary's friend to get her to Dark Beast. Now he's having second thoughts and trying to save her, which is very much Random's MO. Yeah, he's so conflicted. He kind of wants to be a good person, but Dark Beast is the only person who can help him, like, control his power so he doesn't just turn into goo. The art here is also consistently phenomenal. I love Rouleau. We see these flashbacks to Mary's life in the background in sort of muted colors, and then there are the images of her in the present in her containment suit being jerked around through weird technology. It really gets across just how much Dark Beast dehumanizes his test subjects. The contrast between this big backstory of Mary and her just being an object in this machine right now. Meanwhile, everyone else is fighting until Ever shows up and subdues them all telepathically. As it turns out, the XUE was right to stop Alex, because Dark Beast is using the people in the tubes as carriers for a new strain of the legacy virus, one that's totally transmissible to humans, and his plan is to unleash them on the population, sit back, and basically watch the world burn. And apparently, when this happens, because... In the past of the XUE, of everybody from the Bishop siblings' future, this did happen. That would have triggered an intense wave of anti-mutant hysteria, blaming mutants for all these humans dying, and that's one of the things that made everything go to shit. It's a really big retcon, but I think it actually kind of works as one of the things that would set up that dark future. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's a really, really clever direction to go. And that's the thing. Like, we've seen Mackie toy with the present day of X-Factor leading into the Days of Future Past timeline, which itself sideways leads into the Bishop siblings timeline. And now it's like it's all starting to come together after so many issues. So Random keeps McCoy from either killing or unleashing Mary and saves Alex from, I think, a giant exploding blob of bacteria. It's somewhat unclear. Dark Beast does get away, though. And uh, Mystique, after this, leaves as well. She goes back to her fake senator husband. He's a real senator. He's just her fake husband. Oh, that's true. That's true. He doesn't just wear, like, a big sash that says senator, the way that one of the main characters of Bug Snacks wears a big sash that says mayor. Okay. Anyway, Ever also is trying to figure out what to do. Remember, this is a member of Alex's Brotherhood, who is the other half of Alex's big scheme— but he just stays with the test subjects to take care of them. They can't be released until they're no longer a threat to the world. And since one of those test subjects is Mary, and Random, when he was posing as that teenager Alex, grew to really care about Mary, Random stays with Ever and the test subjects as well. Aw, that's nice of him. It is. Uh, she won't be around the next time Random shows up. In fact, she'll never be mentioned again. What can you do? So that leaves Havoc and Shard and the XUE. Which, in theory, was going to be most of the new lineup for the new X-Factor. Havoc summarizes the rough concept of where X-Factor was going at this point. Well, this is my timeline, so I think I'll stick around with you and make sure you don't screw things up. Alex Summers, making sure someone else doesn't screw things up. Hmm. That'll go well. That brings us to X-Factor number 145, Phantoms. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rouleau and Trevor Scott, inked by Jamie Mendoza and Scott Hanna, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and the mysterious S.H., who may or may not also be Scott Hanna. Phantoms. Well, at least it isn't another X issue called Ghosts. We already have enough of those. I like the idea of them just sort of running through synonyms, though. Like, there's another one that's phantasms, specters. Spoopy ghosts? Specifically spoopy ghosts? I, I'm not really sure... If that counts as not ghosts. It's, you know, a modified ghost. There's an adjective. Anyway, we open not with ghosts, but with a flashback. Which is also a flash forward because, that's right, we're going into the period somewhere between the Days of Future Past timeline and its later alternate version, the XSE Bishop Siblings timeline. This is, in fact, specifically at the cusp of what will be known as the Summer's Rebellion. Exactly. And in this, we see XUE member Greystone as a child. He's in line with his mother to be branded with the M face tattoo and given a power-nullifying collar like happened to all the mutants before the Summer's Rebellion, but after the Sentinels took over. However, partway through this process, his power to turn into a giant warrior manifests, and he bursts out of the giant branding machine, which actually looks really cool for something so awful. It's like if you took those turbine manacle things we've yelled about before but made a whole machine out of them. So, a tube? No, no, it's multi-parts. There's, like, lots of turbines, all connected together. And his mother begged him not to resist, but she was immediately killed, and she was killed by a mutant named Micah. It's the guy with a monocle, a cape, and half of his face a mess of scars. And this guy was a hound who voluntarily ran the death camps. Yeah, real messed up dude, horrible person, responsible for the deaths of thousands, including Greystone's mom, right in front of him. 
But apparently, that exact moment is when the Summer's Rebellion started. And before Greystone could try to attack or catch Micah, he was just caught up in the chaos. And it's unclear whether Greystone's mom's death was the catalyst for the Summer's Rebellion, or just one of the many horrible things happening simultaneously, and I like that that's ambiguous. I like the idea that the whole world, the whole situation in general, all the little components just cumulatively hit a boiling point and everything went to hell. Like, we don't know who threw that brick, but clearly the brick was thrown and stuff happened. Now, in the present, Greystone finds something in a newspaper that gives him pause, and that is a kidnapped child by the name of Micah, who he becomes convinced is going to grow up to be the same Micah who killed his mother. Yeah, Greystone is fixated. He doesn't even join into the sparring session between Havoc, Shard, Fix, and Archer, which is in the middle of the night in a thunderstorm, which is pretty pretty metal. The others are immediately skeptical. And Greystone is convinced that he's found Micah, that this 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 kidnapped child Micah is is going to grow up to become evil camps running Micah. The others are extremely skeptical, and we'll get back to that shortly. So again, here we are. This is what Mackie has been building his entire run the present day of X-Factor, leading up to these twin dark futures. Again, I wish this series had gotten a chance to go in this direction. Maybe it would have worked, maybe not, but it would have been interesting. Anyway, from here, we're off to our other artist, the much more realistic Trevor Scott, so it's a somewhat jarring transition. And Scott draws Archer as Jude, calling the wife of Jude Black, who apparently hoped her husband was actually dead because he was a criminal and a horrible, abusive person. But Archer, as Jude, promises to atone for his body's history's sins. Well, he has all of Jude's memories, and Archer himself has never had a family, so he loves the idea of, of somehow using this guy's past and experience and life to sort of give himself one. It's, it's, it's a weird situation. It's kind of messed up. Like, we do definitely get that Archer is going to do his best to make things right with this family, but it seems like the best thing he could do for this family would be to just leave them the hell alone. For a lot of reasons, one of which is that he's getting back in touch with them under fundamentally false auspices. Another thing maybe we would have seen more of had the series gotten a chance to continue. We'll see bits and pieces of this, but it never really, really goes anywhere. Havoc and Shard, meanwhile, as the non-XUE members of the team, are off to get keys to a new place to stay from, hey, it's Forge, who's really mad at Havoc still. But Havoc's like, dude, I called to explain why I acted like a supervillain for a long time and did horrible things and attacked you a bunch. Forge is not having it. Sure. A phone call clears everything up. Explains why you couldn't trust us, your teammates, your friends, to help you with the Black Beast. I believe you had the best of intentions, but I don't have to like you, Alex. Fair enough, Forge. It is kind of weird that Forge doesn't talk to Shard, who he's been working with much more recently, but I guess Shard never really connected with much of the team, really just with Wildchild and a little bit Polaris. And that's really it for Forge in this series. Yeah. After this, he'll eventually join the staff at the X-Mansion and be around in the background, but he's not going to be a main character of a comic again until 2013's Cable and X-Force series. Damn. Right? That makes me a little sad, but again, this is a good way to shift a status quo in a way that feels organic. You give everyone a send-off that actually makes sense if they're not going to be a part of the book anymore. So, the XUE meet up after this. They decide after some arguing to go ahead and find the kidnapped Micah together. And if he seems to actually be their Micah, they'll figure out what to do at that point. And if he's not, they'll have saved a kidnapped kid. So 
it's a wash. And in the place where this kidnapped child and some other kidnapped children are being held, it is freaking Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. No, seriously, like, it is exactly that. There's this priest that looks almost exactly like Mola Ram from that movie, about to sacrifice young Micah, and also it's awesome that there are these extremely large skulls all around as decor, which is pretty rad, but not as rad as the big neon skull at the end of Big Trouble in Little China. There's like a hierarchy of cool skulls, I guess. What the cult specifically wants to do is brand Micah, and they want to do this so he can join them in surviving the coming Revelation-style apocalypse. And suddenly, the way this dude ended up makes a little more sense. He was obsessed with capturing and branding and controlling people, so yeah, this is the trauma that apparently began his descent into being a horrible, horrible mass murderer. Now, the XUE beat up all the cultists. Greystone initially still wants to kill the kid, but Fix points out that they have probably averted Micah becoming what he was going to become. And it's so sad. Micah doesn't know what's going on, but he just looks up at the now-powered-down, much smaller Greystone and says, like, with a trembling face, I'm sorry, sir, for whatever you think I did. So there you have it, the first half of The End of X-Factor Volume 1. And I'm not going to say these are the best comics I've read, or even that they're necessarily all that great, but god, this book finally has a direction, it finally has a purpose, and I know it's never going to get there. In that regard, it's almost like a version of Kelly and Siegel's Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. We know the run's not going to end well, but the beginning part kind of has some promise. Yeah, it's intriguing, and it would have been nice to have the opportunity to see whether it realized that promise. But who has even more promise are our listeners, and they've got questions. Brandon emailed us to ask, In days of future past, the X-Men send Kate Pride's mind back in time to try and stop the Sentinel's rise to power. Of course, that's not how time travel usually works in the Marvel Universe, and it just creates a new timeline instead of changing anything. Many of the X-Men in the present-day mainstream Marvel Universe would presumably know this would be the outcome because they've been dealing with time travel shit for decades of publishing time. So what's the deal with characters like Kate Pride apparently not knowing it in Earth-811? Could this be a timeline where the X-Men weren't constantly dealing with time travel shit? That's a really good point. As we recently covered in Uncanny X-Men number minus one, Rachel Summers follows Madame Sanctity back in time to prevent Sanctity from mucking with the timeline, because Rachel, of all people, knows that doesn't work. I mean, nothing changed when she helped send Kate Pride back at the start of the Days of Future Past story. I have a very simple answer to this, and that is that in long-running, ongoing, shared-universe superhero comics— in the long term, very few characters learn from experience. That's very true. That is a very good point. But I think it also makes sense, and I think Brandon kind of hit the nail on the head, because Shard also refused to help the XUE when she met them before everyone went back in time, because she was also very against trying to change the past, thinking it wouldn't work. But Shard didn't know about this branching timeline thing. She just figured it was too dangerous. So that, in combination with Rachel and Kate not knowing what was up at the start of Days of Future Past, implies to me that, yeah, these timelines, which as we know are closely related, if not identical, I don't think they ever had to deal with time travel. These are the timelines from which everybody tried to go back in time to change things. But they're also then, by definition, timelines where nobody did previously go back in time to change things. I don't think they've seen that kind of a branching timeline. I don't think they've dealt with it ever before. Now, you get some interesting twists on this later when people go into the future to change things, based partially on their knowledge of the future. 
And whether that creates branching timelines is a question that's never entirely addressed. Right. We see, for instance, Earth 811, the Days of Future Past timeline, being fixed in the Excalibur story Days of Future Yet to Come when Rachel brings Excalibur from the present day forward into that timeline. And we see all of the stuff that Layla Miller and Jamie Madrox are going to do in Bishop's Future, which is also Bishop's Past. Exactly. It gets kind of funky. And there are, of course, certain instances of time travel that don't create splinter futures in the same way, like the way the time-displaced teenage original five X-Men kind of worked out. I mean, their past and the present day of the Marvel Universe, there was no branching. It's the same thing. And then there's, like, the way when the Age of Apocalypse ends, Earth-616, its timeline gets shifted back to where it was, although then the Age of Apocalypse itself keeps going, so it's all very confusing. As with so many things in comics, it's inconsistent. But in this one case, I think we can definitively say, Brandon, I think you're right. Earth-811 and Earth-1191 do not know how time travel works, because they only ever time travel out of it, not into it. Except that one time Rachel did. Devin emailed us to ask... If Mr. Sinister spliced Moira's DNA with Havocs, would the Chimera spend multiple lives trying to finish one PhD but never doing it, or would the Chimera be ABD in a new discipline each life? Devin, I don't think that the Chimera would be either of those things. I think that the Chimera would be ABD in multiple disciplines in each life, basically at the perpetual cusp of becoming one of those magic interdisciplinary superhero scientists, and they would just accumulate more and more and more of those. And if they ever actually finished a dissertation, that would be their final lifetime. Oh, man. So like Alex Nine or whatever would have nine almost degrees? No. uh, Well, Alex Nine would have however many he accumulated, but he would just end up with, with more and more and more across different lifetimes. I assume more than nine by his ninth life. Oh, right. Okay, so eventually this would just build up more and more until, like you said, either his final life was when he finally got a degree, or presumably the multiverse exploded from being too complicated and full of almost degrees. Miles, there are a lot of people who never finish their dissertations. And if there are that many more, then the universe is going to explode. So, um, finish your degree, I guess? No, you don't have to finish your degree. The universe won't explode. Probably. And with that... Jay and Miles Explained the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and 100% ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it back to the miniseries, minds. That's right. It Gambit time. Gambit time.